we'll be picking up uh, in chapter 8, the best laid plans of, of Jackie is that we do chapter 8, 9, and 10. However, comma, I don't know if I've ever made my projection yet. So maybe tonight will be the night that we're able to do it. But as we look at uh, uh, 2 Samuel, beginning in chapter 8, we're introduced to the conquering leader. Now, last time we saw, David had a time of, of quiet. The enemies were no longer attacking them. He's got a time of relative peace. But he still does not possess all the land that God promised. When God promised Abraham, he promised Abraham 300,000 square miles. At the height of David's reign, uh, we'll see basically the, the best part of it coming out in chapter 8 is uh, going to be 30,000 square miles. So 10% of what God had for him in their promise is what they actually possessed. And when we look at that, we always want to be reminded and challenged, hopefully, by that concept. That God has so much for us, how much of what God has for us are we actually possessing? What do we actually take? You know, it's interesting because uh, we have a, a men's discipleship group that meets on, uh, on Tuesday nights. And, and we sit down and go over different things, a variety of different topics. And of late, we've been looking at Dietrich Bonhoeffer's book, The Call to Discipleship. And as we look at his, as we've been going through his book, one of the challenges that's, that's definitely something to chew on is that idea that if the Lord was to come to you right now and say, call, give you the call, it required a call, right? When God came to Levi, he called them, Levi, come and follow me. When Levi answered the call, he left everything and followed the Lord. In our journey into all the promises that God has for us. That journey oftentimes begins or many times comes back to us being willing to lay down all the stuff we're holding on to to be able to possess all that Christ has for us. And oftentimes, you, maybe you've experienced people in your life, I know I have in mine, that are holding on to something, whether it be a sin or a weight, or something that's holding them back from being whatever they can be in Christ, but they're holding on to that thing because that thing either has a hold of them or they don't want to let go. And so they stay in that place and they, and they don't progress. And when we look at that, when we look at the nation of Israel and what they possessed of God, 10%, a tenth of all that God had for them. So when we... When we look at our life in, in relation to the nation of Israel, are we willing to possess all that God has for us? Because possessing what God has requires us to let go of the things we're holding on to and lay hold of what he has for us. That's an interesting challenge for us. It's the same challenge for every man and, and woman of the Lord. David's got a time of peace. He could just sit back, right? He could just sit back. If we, if we wanted to, to make a correlation, we could say, here David's saved, he's in the kingdom, everything's good, he doesn't have to do anything. But we're going to see him go forward into possessing more of what God has for him. And that's the challenge of our walk with Christ every day. 
today? Am I willing to possess all that God has for me today? And often it's going to require, one, me to be listening, right? One, for me to be listening for God's call, His direction. What is it? Where is He taking me? It makes no sense to let go of everything and run off rampantly. It requires a call. Where is God calling me? He had called the nation of Israel to possess the land. So David moves forward and, and does his part, in essence, of trying to possess all that the Lord has for him. Look at eight, chapter 8, verse 1. After this, it came to pass that David attacked the Philistines and subdued them. And David took Metheg Amah from the hand of the Philistines. Now, Metheg Amah doesn't really mean anything to us, so let me give it to you this way. Metheg Amah is Gath. Remember Gath? Gath is like the capital of the Philistine lands. It's the place where David ran and hid. Remember, for about a year and a half, he hid among the Philistines when he was tired of running uh, from, from Saul and Israel. He went and joined the enemy. Gath is also the place where Goliath was born. It also go, goes by this name. So David, he gets up and he says, Hey, God has called us to possess the land. 300,000 square miles, and the Philistines are in it. Now, they're not attacking me, but they're in, they're part of, they're in the promise that God's given me. So I need to take care of those things. The Philistines. The Philistines can be an example of things in our life that are in the way of us being able to move forward into all that God has for us. And they're, maybe they're not bothering us. They're over there in the corner. We hardly ever think about them anymore. But David understood God's call to be the Philistines got to go. They got to get out of the land. We're supposed to be possessing this area. So he went and enlarged the territories. And he went after the, the very uh, capital city. It goes on to say, and he defeated Moab, forcing them down to the ground. He measured them off with the line. Now that phrase, forcing them down to the ground, is a phrase phrase of submission he forces the nation to submit oftentimes that would be the leaders lying on the ground and david putting his foot on top of them that was a symbol in those days of we're in submission to you we're under your foot in this case not only does he put them on the ground but it says with two lines he measures off those to be put to death and with one full line those to be kept alive all the guys who are a danger, who may rebel later on, or who are a problem, he kills. He destroys the ones that aren't, the ones that are, are willing to serve and, and be a part, then he allows those to live. And so it says, they're kept alive. So the Moabites became David's servants and brought tribute. The Moabites become his servants. It says, now David also defeated Hadarazar, the son of Rehob, king of Zobah, who had, as he went, excuse me, to recover his territory from the river Euphrates. Oftentimes we see today people arguing about the West Bank. Well, that's not the West Bank in the book. The West Bank in the book is the river Euphrates. The West Bank on TV is the Jordan. Not the same. The Lord said, you would, back in Genesis chapter 15, he said, from the Nile to the river Euphrates. Those were the borders for, for the nation of Israel. Those were the borders that they were to have. So here David goes all the way, fulfilling 
part of that promise, extending the borders all the way to the river Euphrates. It says, David took from him 1,000 chariots, 700 horsemen, 20,000 foot soldiers, and also David hamstrung the chariot horses, except that he spared enough of them for 100 chariots. Now, the word had declared to David in the book of Deuteronomy that the king had several things he was supposed to do. One of the things he's supposed to do is write out a copy of the scriptures, transcribe the Bible. The other thing is he's not to multiply wives for himself. He's not to multiply gold for himself. And he's not to multiply horses. Now, the symbolism for that in the Old Testament, the horses, that was the might of your military. How many times do we read in the Bible that they had a thousand chariots or they had 20,000 chariots? That's like saying how many tanks you had. The, the idea is God saying, don't be putting your trust in the, in the might of the military, the horses that you have. Don't put your trust in the gold or the money that you have. And don't multiply wise for yourself because they're going to turn your heart away from the true and living God. And just as God gave that declaration to David, he kept the parts of it that he liked. He didn't mind so much the horse part. So he's going to only keep a hundred horses out of this. He's going to hamstring the rest. When, he, when they hamstrung them in those days, it made them useless for battle. They are still useful, still live. They weren't, you know, missing legs or anything. They were just not able any longer to be mounted with heavy armor, pole chariots to do those kind of things. So he made sure that they were not useful for fighting anymore. We're not going to fight against these horses again. We're not going to come against these chariots. So he hamstrings the horses. And the scripture goes on to tell us then, uh, when the Syrians of Damascus came to help Hadarazer, the king of Zobah, David killed 22,000 of the Syrians. And David put garrisons in Syria of Damascus. And the Syrians became David's servants and brought tribute. So the Lord preserved David wherever he went. And we're going to hear that phrase over and over again as we, as we begin the study in the life of David. That it's the Lord who preserves him. It's God who guides and leads him. Is David perfect? No. Does he follow perfectly God's law or design for his life? No, he doesn't. He fails. Sometimes he's going to fail miserably. But God preserves him. See, this is what is understood by us as we study the scriptures as what grace is all about. If grace was dependent upon our ability to perfectly keep God's law, none of us would be saved. Nor could we be. Because we will not be able to attain sinless perfection. But by God's grace, He covers that. The difference is, this is not a, a cheap or a, 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 a grace that's not valued by David. Because David, in his everyday life, his, he's headed toward the Lord. His eyes are on God. He's wanting to make the Lord central. He's wanting to follow Him. Not perfect. But that's the desire of his heart. It's what the scripture declares, right? He's a man after God's own heart. He wants to go be a part of whatever God has going on. 
the important thing that we need to realize is God who preserves him. It's not David who built the kingdom, who was an amazing king or an amazing, you know, had the amazing ability to get more out of people than anybody else. He simply was being preserved by the Lord and, and a willing tool in God's hands to allow God to work and move in his life. Scripture says in verse 7, So David took the shields of gold that had belonged to the servants of Hadarazar and brought them to Jerusalem. Also from Betah and from Berothai, cities of Hadarazar, King David took a large amount of bronze. Now when Toy, king of Amath, heard that David had defeated the army of Hadarazar, then Toy sent Joram, his son, to King David, to greet him and bless him because he had fought against Hadarazar, and defeated him, uh, for Hadarazar had been at war with Toy, and Joram brought with him articles of silver, articles of gold, articles of bronze. So what's King David doing with all this stuff? As he's, as he's expanding the territory of Israel, as he's pushing the border out to the places where the Lord told him the border should be, And out of that, he's receiving wealth and riches and gold and silver. What's he do with it? Well, the next verse tells us what he does. Next verse says that King David dedicated these to the Lord, along with the silver and the gold that had been dedicated from all the nations he had subdued. Everything that came in, David gave to the Lord. All of it. The tribute that came from the Philistines. The tribute that comes from the Ammonites and the Amalekites and the Moabites. The tribute that came in, he dedicated to the Lord. You see, he took all that gold, all that silver, all that bronze, and he just piled it up. And he said, this is for God's house. Now, David doesn't get to build God's house, right? And maybe you've known people who had to deal with disappointment in their life. They really wanted to be something or do something, and God didn't allow it. God closed the door. And then maybe as a result, they say, well, forget it then. I don't want to be a part of it at all. I've had the unfortunate experience in in my experience in ministry to see that. Oftentimes, those kind of things come out particularly in worship ministry. I don't know why. It just seems like it comes out that way. And I have, a, <laughs> I have a number of people who would come and, and uh, when, when I was back in California and they wanted to be a part of uh, this worship team or that worship team. And, and so maybe we didn't have any openings at that time in those areas, but we always, always had openings in children's worship all the time. Because, as you might be able to imagine, people are now waiting in line for the opportunity to try to sing a song in front of three- and four-year-olds. Because three- and four-year-olds afterwards are not going to come tell you how great you are or look in awe as you, as you play or as you sing. It's a great test of why you're doing it in the first place. <laughs> so, oftentimes when they couldn't get on the team they wanted, they just say, well, forget it. I don't want to be part of anything in worship. And so they would, would, would withdraw. But that's not what David wants to build a temple. God says, no, what's David do? He brings together all the building materials so that when the temple's built, it's all there. He still becomes a part of, of it, even though he doesn't get to be the guy. 
He just brings the stuff in so that it's available for whoever the Lord raises up. That's the heart after God's own heart. It's not about me. It's not about my name or me being seen or me being heard. It's about the Lord. It's about Him. I want God to have a house, so I'm going to bring the gold. I'm going to bring the silver. I'm going to do the stuff. He basically, all Solomon does is pull the trigger and tell the guys to build it. The stuff is almost all there as a result of David amassing and expanding the borders of the nation. So as David goes on and, and becomes the conquering leader, everything that he receives, he devotes to the Lord. From Syria, from Moab, from the, from the people of Ammon, <coughs> from the Philistines and Amalek, from the spoil of Hadarezar, the son of Rehob, king of Zobah, and David made himself a name when he returned from killing 18,000 Syrians in the Valley of Salt. Valley of Salt, that would have been in an area of the Dead Sea. If you get a chance to go there today, you will have no problem understanding why they call it the Valley of Salt. Because there's a lot of salt there. Everywhere you look. But David was conquering the Syrians, the Moabites, all these traditional enemies of God that had encroached on the borders and squeezed Israel down to this tiny speck. David pushed out and regained 10% of everything that God had for them. So he put garrisons in Edom. Throughout all of Edom, he put garrisons, and the Edomites became David's servants. And look at the phrase again. And the Lord preserved David wherever he went. It's not David. It's the Lord. It's the Lord. It's the Lord working in our life. If we are believers, whether we're believers or not, the scripture declares the same thing. Every good and perfect gift comes from our Father in heaven. Believer or unbeliever, it's the same. Every blessing in our life, every good and perfect thing, it passes through his hands toward us. And so David is preserved by the Lord. It's God moving. It's God working. And God knew the weaknesses of David. And he knew the struggles of David. David already had at this point at least three, if not seven or eight, too many wives. Already. He's already disobedient to what God has said. Do not multiply wives for yourself. But David enjoyed that part of his life. And he didn't bring that part under God's control. He didn't rein it in. And so he knows, God knows his weakness. In chapter 11, we're going to have the most famous weakness of David at all. That's not that far away, right? Hopefully it'll be... You know, the, the next Wednesday, if we get there. Which is, God knew his weakness, but what's the scripture say? God preserved him wherever he went. God's grace is always there. His grace is always able to save us from the uttermost. In those struggles, in those places. And God is long-suffering and patient to reach out and to call and to try to chasten and try to direct his children, to follow his direction. But he preserves him wherever he goes. Just as he preserves you and I. God, knowing our weakness, still is with us, still extending to us his grace. 
So David reigned over all Israel, and David administered judgment and justice to all the people. Now Joab, the son of Zariah, was over the army. And Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilud, was a recorder. Now, this is, Joab's going to be the, the general over the army. Jehoshaphat's going to be the guy who's writing down all these things that we read. First and second Samuel, first and second Chronicles, that go through the life of David. And as we, as we look at those, we can see his journals, his entries. The beautiful thing about that is it lays out for us that concept of learning to journal, learning to write down those places God's brought you, what the Lord's done in your life, so we can look back and see the fingerprints of God later on. And you know what? Even if you can't see it, your kids can. You don't think your kids would read a journal they found from you? You're gone. The Lord's called you home. You're in your heavenly abode and your children are going through your stuff and they come across a couple of dads you you don't think they'd want to look at dad's journals see the journey of the lord brought and worked and wrought through his life you don't think that they'd want to see how god moved and how god worked david understood the value of it in fact we're still reading it today looking back at the things God did in his life. It's important. It's important. And it can be important for us as well. If we'll, if we'll make it so. Zadok, the son of Ahitub, and Ahimelech, the son of Abiathar, were the priests. Now there's two priests. Does that seem odd to anyone? Does anyone remember, according to Leviticus, how many priests there's supposed to be? Well, this talking about high priests. So there should only be one high priest. But there's two. Why is there two? Because there's two worship centers. The tabernacle is still at Shiloh. But the Ark of the Covenant is in Jerusalem. So there's a high priest in one place and a high priest in the other. Eventually, under Solomon, we're going to see that come under Zadok, the family name of Zadok. And Zadok is going to be the family from which the high priest is going to flow from that time forward. We'll see that as we go through David's time a little bit more. <clears throat> now, Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was over both the Cherethites and the Pelethites, and David's sons were chief ministers. So family's all part of what David's doing. He's, he's organized, got an organization within the government, and he's expanded the borders in chapter 9. And borders are, ex- or chapter 8, the borders are expanded. So in chapter 9, after expanding, after pushing out, after giving some space between the enemies of Israel and the people of Israel, he says in chapter 9, verse 1, So David said, Is there still anyone who is left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now, this is an odd statement for kings of the ancient world. Kings of the ancient world, when they took over, would tend to slaughter the entire family of any rival. Every one of them. Kill them all so none of them could ever come up and rebel against them and have a claim to the throne. Slaughter them all. But David shows his heart. He wants to show kindness to who? To the house of Saul for Jonathan's sake. 
because of the promise he made to Jonathan. You guys remember the promise? Jonathan and David got together and Jonathan said, you know, I know you're going to be king one day and I'll be your second. But if, if I'm not around when you get there, will you be good to my family? Take care of my family? They made that promise to each other. They made that promise. So David, after all this, he's expanded the borders. He goes, well, is there someone in Saul's family? Not Jonathan's. Is there someone in Saul's family? David never one time considered Saul his enemy. Never once. You're never going to find David call Saul anything but the Lord's anointed. Never considered him an enemy. Is there anyone in Saul's house... And then the word kindness, I want to draw your attention to that word. That word kindness literally means that there's someone to whom I can show love for the covenant on behalf of Jonathan. He's saying, he's, he's directly referring to the promise him and Jonathan made to each other to take care of each other's family. So I want to fulfill this promise to Jonathan. Is there anybody left? Is there anybody left of his family? And you remember... Back when King Saul died, you remember? There was a guy we were introduced to. I told you he was coming back. His name is Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth means shameful breathing. A lot of people believe he had allergies. He had struggle breathing. Maybe when he was born, he, he snored, had a funny little snore to him or a little wheeze to him. So they named him Mephibosheth or Wheezy. And they... They give him this name, you know, and he's five years old. When, when his father and his uncles and his, and his grandpa are all killed. And his nursemaid, because she's afraid that the new kingdom that comes in is going to slaughter all the people who have a claim to the throne, grabs up Mephibosheth and takes off running with him. And somewhere along the run, she drops him. Now, sometimes our vision of that dropping is, is probably different than how it actually occurred. When he was dropped, he incurred a spinal injury that made him lame. So he's not walking. From the time he's five, now it's many years later, he can't walk, he's lame. He's got a name called Wheezy, which, which he's probably not all that happy about. You know, I can guarantee you of all the people going through Bible names are not looking at Mephibosheth for their child. I know. Let's find one. Mephibosheth. That's it. So he's, he's in a hard place and a hard time. But David says, and I want, you, I want you to see two pictures as we look at chapter 9. I want you to put yourself in the place of David and I want, to put, I want you to put yourself in the place of Mephibosheth. We, you and I, are Mephibosheth and David is the Lord. And we're all lame and we're all sick and we're all weak and we're all in a desert place like we're going to find Mephibosheth. Yet the king is going to come to us and offer us a place at his table. But in, the, in a similar way, we're King David or emissaries of David to go to Mephibosheth and to bring to him that word. 
And to not look at him as the sickly, the lame, the needy, the troubled. They're constantly calling me or bugging me. They always need something. Oh, what am I going to do? You ever felt that way about anybody? We're just supposed to bring the love of the king to them. Period. It's not our problem. It's just our call. To extend the love of the king to the weak to the sick, to the lame, to the undeserving, of whom I am chief, as Paul would say. David says, is there anyone left? Verse 2, it says, there was a servant of the house of Saul, whose name was Ziba. So when they had called him to David, the king said to him, are you Ziba? And he said, at your service. The king said, is there not still someone of the house of Saul, to whom I may show kindness? has said that I may show covenant love to. I want to keep my promise. Jonathan. And Ziba said to the king, there is still a son of Jonathan who is lame in his feet. Somehow I think when David heard that, his heart is broke. Jonathan has a son? Where's he at? What? Why... All this time he's been hiding. All this time he's been hiding for fear of the king. For fear of David. Jonathan's best friend ever in the world. People have been hiding him saying, No, you don't want to have a relationship with the king. I mean, he's, he's just and holy. He's killed 10,000. You should see him slaughtering the people in the... In the battles and stuff, you don't want to go to him. I heard a story of a guy who went to him and said he was involved in killing your grandpa and he just chopped him up in pieces. Later on, another guy came to him and brought him very similar news, ex- expecting to receive a reward. And David killed him too. What do you think he'll do to you if you go? Ah, Mephibosheth, you stay here. And they hit him. Ziba and his family. And his nursemaid, still caring for him all these years later. What's his life like? He at one time lived in the palace. Now he's lame. That means he doesn't work. He's lame. That means he begs on a street corner. Mephibosheth is one of the guys on a corner with a sign that says, Can't work for food. With a bucket sitting beside him, hoping that somebody who drives by is going to toss some change in his bucket. He was a prince. He was part of the, the lineage to the king. But now he's just broken, wasted, sitting on a corner. Sitting on a corner wondering... This can't really be God's plan for my life. So the king said to Ziba, where is he? And Ziba said to the king, indeed, he is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, in Lodibar. Lodibar is Hebrew for pastureless place. He's in the desert. He's in the wilderness. He's in a pit. He's in a place where there's no grass. I came from a place like that. Very depressing. (laughs) Dirt everywhere. No grass. 
I came here and everybody would say to me, Jackie, what do you think of the desert? I'm like, what are you talking about, man? This is paradise. You want to see the desert? I'll show you a desert. There's not a stinking lawn in the whole town I came from. None. There is a city park that's dirt and a playground. Huh? Yeah, it's in the desert. There's no water. You know all these little things running around here that you all call canals? I call those rivers. Man, there's life flowing everywhere out here. Water's everywhere. You know where the town I come from got its water? The Colorado River. We bought it from the Colorado River. And the Colorado River would pipe it to us. Because it's the desert. There's no water there. You say, well, just dig a well. Knock yourself out. You know, they charge you by the foot for those things, right? I come out here. Yeah, we had to drill nearly 100 foot to get to water. Wow. You would be going almost 10 times that far to maybe hit a water table. By the way, that's deep. Why? Because it's a desert. There's no reason to live there at all. Except that if you move into the God-forsaken wasteland, you can get a cheap house. There's no water in it. No lawn. Blazing sun. No pool, because there's no water. So I understand this place that Mephibosheth is in. <coughs> Lo Debar. It is Hebrew for Yucca Valley. <laughs> in verse 6... In verse 6 it says, Now, when Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he fell on his face and prostrated himself. So when, when Mephibosheth, shameful breath, sick and lame, comes before David, he comes and he's going to lay on his face. Now, we're going to come to a, the next chapter and we're going to see a totally different attitude. But here we see a man coming before the king, prostrate before him. That's a, that's a sign of utter humility, submission to, to the king. Actually, it's a, it's a direct call from God to us because we're called to humble ourselves in the sight of the Lord. We read things in the scripture like we see, and they worshipped him, and we gloss over that. Or we, we picture worship sometimes as, as what we do in church when we stand up and raise our hands. But the word worship, the word shakah in Hebrew for worship means to fall on your face before the living God. To humble yourself. To just get as low as you can. It's an attitude that says, man, I'm, I recognize my shame, sin, dirt, that I'm not worthy to be here. And then the Lord says, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord. And what does he promise to do? He'll lift you up. God's not pushing you down. God wants that attitude, that right attitude before him so he can lift you up. Come up, man. You're, listen to the sound. You're my son. It's the exact same thing David 
is doing what Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth comes before the king prostrate on the ground. Laying down before the king. Look at David. I'm sure he's, he don't even know. Am I going to be killed? I mean, he's the king. Um, I could be a threat to the throne, I suppose. I can't walk and I can barely breathe, but, but I suppose I could be a threat. He, he may want to, he may want to kill me. <coughs> so David said, Mephibosheth, and he answered, here's your servant. I am yours. That's a phrase to me that we say to the Lord. When we come to the Lord in salvation, we come to the Lord. uh, My understanding of salvation, there's a couple of things required. One of those is repentance, turning from my old life, turning away from all the garbage, all the sin. For everyone who comes to the Lord is a sinner who must turn from his sin, repent, turn toward the Lord, let go of this, grab a hold of this. Let go of my old life, grab a hold of the new life. Hold on to Jesus Christ and proclaim myself, I am your servant. I'm yours. Here you have Mephibosheth doing that very thing. So David said to him, now think how often we hear these words from God. Do not fear. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid, Mephibosheth. Do not fear, for I will show you hesad, covenantial love. I'll show you the love of the promise. David's showing him the love of a promise to Jonathan. God shows us the love of the promise that he made to us. The, the love of a of a God who gave his only begotten son that we could, like Mephibosheth, have a relationship with God. The lame, the crippled, living in a desert place without water. What did Jesus say? If you're thirsty, come unto me and I'll give you drink. If you're hungry, come unto me and I'll give you food for I am the bread of life. I will give unto you living water and if you drink of this water, you'll never thirst again. The promise to pull us from that desert place and bring us to the table of the king. Bring us into the house of the king. He says, don't be afraid because I'm going to show you, I'm going to show you the love of the promise. That's what he's saying. I will show you kindness for Jonathan, your father's sake, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul. Joel 2.25, probably my favorite scripture in the, this week. It might change next week, but I love Joel chapter 2. Joel chapter 2 tells the children of Israel, if you do not follow in obedience to me, and if you don't repent of your sin, then the locusts are going to come and they're going to eat everything. They're going to eat the grass, they're going to eat the food, they're going to eat your cars, they're going to eat your house, they're going to eat it all. They're going to eat your time. They're going to eat it all, everything. And you will look around and you will say, I have nothing for the locusts have ate it all. And the Lord said, but if you return to me, I will give you back the years that the locusts ate. Mephibosheth has been for years living in a desert where nothing grows, begging on the street corner 
for whatever someone will drop in his can. But God says to him, I'm going to give you back all the land of your father. Everything that you ever possessed, that you lost in the fall. Think about it. He lost it all that day when he was five years old, when he fell. We all fell too. We're all lame. We can't walk before God. We can't stand before him. We come before him as his servant and he will give us back more than what we lost in the fall. That's the promise that David is fulfilling to Mephibosheth. That's the promise that he's laying out for him. Listen, I'm going to give you all the land of your grandfather. And finally, you will eat bread at my table forever. That's what that word continually means. Forever. This is not the last time we see Mephibosheth. We're going to see Mephibosheth again when Absalom rises up a rebellion against David. He's going to come around again. But in this point, Mephibosheth, after the fall, lame, the king raises him up. He humbles himself before the king. The king raises him up. He bestows upon him more than he ever lost. And then he says, you will eat at my table forever. Revelation 3 says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if you will open the door and let me in, I will come in to you and you with me. I will sup with you and you will sup with me. The psalmist would write in the 23rd Psalm, He has prepared a table before me where? In the presence of mine enemies. I always have a table to eat at. I can always come to the Lord's table, the place where his body was broken and where his blood was shed for me. There's a place at his table always. That's the promise that (coughs) David lays out. And so he bows himself and he says, Who am I? What is your servant that I I should look upon such a, or that you should look upon such a dead dog as I. I'm worthless. I'm useless. I'm lame. I can't do anything. Why do you care about me at all? Why do you care about me at all? So the king called to Ziba. Oh, you notice the king didn't answer that question. I think it's important that that's our attitude, but the king never answers that question. Who am I that you are mindful of me, David would write. Who is man? Why do you care about us? You know, God never answers those questions. He just loves us. He doesn't answer. But it's a right attitude. A wrong attitude would be, well, thanks, King, that's a pretty good offer. You know, I'll see if I can come every other weekend. Maybe I can, I can come hang out with you and sit at your table. That's a bad attitude. The right attitude is, who am I that you would offer something so good to me? Listen, if we don't value the gift of Jesus Christ on the cross, you will treat him as though he's a bother to you and he should be lucky to get a day out of your week. But if you value 
what Jesus Christ has done for you, you're always looking for an opportunity to to show that love, to pay that love out to others. You're willing to say, who am I? Of course I'll sit at your table. Of course I'll come. Of course I'll heed your call. If you tell me get out the boat, I'll walk on the water. If you tell me stay in the boat, I'll stay in the boat. Whatever you have, wherever you send, whatever you, wherever I'm supposed to go, that's the whole point of the song we sang. The words of Ruth. Where you go, I'll go. Where you die, I will be buried. Your God is my God. Your people, my people. Where you go, I go. That's the attitude. That's the right attitude that we want to have, honoring the gift. Well, the king says to Ziba, Saul's servant, he says, I have given your master's son all that belonged to Saul and to all his house. You, therefore, Ziba, and your sons and your servants are going to work the land for him. And you will bring in the harvest that your master's son may have food to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's son, will eat at my table always, forever. He's got a place at the king's table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. So 35 guys are going to work the land that David just gave to Mephibosheth. He raised them up, brought them out of the, of the miry clay, the dusty road. He brought them out of all that garbage and set them up at the king's table. That's what God does for us. And that's the way God expects us to treat those who are in the dust, who are in the desert, who are broken, who are lame, who are needy, who can't seem to figure out how to get out of their own dirt and and craziness of their life. We can't solve it. I can't cure them. I can't fix them. I can love them the way God loves me. And I'm just as lame as some of the people I think are lame in my life. To the Lord, we're all lame. But God extends that love and grace to us, so we ought to extend that love and grace. Everyone deserves it. Whosoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved, period. Well, Ziba said to the king, According to all, my lord, the king has commanded his servant, so will your servant do. As for Mephibosheth, said the king, he will eat at my table, listen to this, like one of the king's sons. Now what the Lord does to us? The Bible tells us that we've been adopted as sons of the Most High. I can enter boldly into the throne room of God Why? Because I have been adopted as a son. He treats me as his child, as one of his children, as his son. I'm adopted. I'm not natural. I'm adopted. He brings me in. He showers me with gifts. He lets me enter in to that relationship. He treats me like one of the king's son. And Mephibosheth had a young son. I love this. Mephibosheth had a young son And he named him Micah. Micah means who is like my God. 
I think the only reason the Bible gives us this verse, verse 12, the only reason is to show that Mephibosheth, as his life came together and as he was able to come up out of the dust and out of the gutter and out of all the garbage that was in his life and God blessed him and he had a family and he has a son, he remembers who did it. It wasn't David. Because just like everywhere David went, God preserved him. Everywhere Mephibosheth went, God preserved him. And when he had a child, he named him Micah. Who is like our God? So Mephibosheth dwelt in Jerusalem, and he ate continually at the king's table. By the way, he's lame in both his feet. That's a little reminder to every one of us who eat at the king's table. Uh, By the way, you're still lame in both your feet. You're still lame. You did not arrive. You're not somehow more wonderful than anybody else. You're still lame in both your feet. I'm still affected by the fall. Mephibosheth still can't walk. I still cannot stand before God apart from the sacrifice of his son. It's not me. It's him. So at the king's table, I need to be reminded I'm lame. I'm broken since the fall. I'm looking forward to the day I look into his eyes and I know him as he knows me. That's a future day yet to come. But until that time, I'm lame in both my feet. That means I'll come to the king's table and fall. And so will you. And so will everyone else who's part of the family of God. Because we're still lame. We still struggle. We still fall. But we're still invited to the table forever. Always. Well, in chapter 10, we're going to be introduced to another guy. In chapter 10, it says, Well, it happened after this that the king of the people of Ammon died. Hanan, his son, reigned in his place. So David said, I will show kindness to Hanan. Oh, there's that word again. I'm going to show covenantal love. Now, David conquered the people. He conquered the Ammonites and placed them in submission to him. But he wanted, honestly, to reach out in kindness to the son of the king who had pledged his loyalty to David. That king had died. David wants to give the same kindness, the same phrase, the same word used here for Mephibosheth. But here you don't have a guy lame in his feet. Here you have a guy who's got it all. He just inherited the throne. He lives in a palace. He's got all this stuff going for him. Listen, the same kindness is shown to both. The same kindness goes out to both people. The same kindness is supposed to go out to both people because it is given to each person for their choice either to receive or reject. The same kindness goes to Hanum. But he has a wholly different attitude. And Mephibosheth. I want to show kindness. So David sent by the hand of his servants to comfort him concerning his father. 
And David's servants came into the land of the people of Ammon. Now the princes of the people of Ammon said to Hanan, Their lord, do you think David really honors your father because he sent comforters to you? Has David not rather sent his servants to you to search the city, to spy it out, to overthrow it? They have all these bad things to say about the servants of God. Imagine such a thing. People saying bad things about the servants of God? All you got to do is open a newspaper. You'll find a couple articles in there about it. <laughs> Therefore, Hanan took David's servants, shaved off half of their beard, cut off their garments in the middle at the buttocks, and sent them away. He humiliated them. The greatest form of degradation in that society was to have your beard destroyed these guys just had it shaved off jesus had his pulled out but that was a form of of degradation uh, humiliation then they took their clothes and they cut them out and made them walk out of town naked with their buttocks hanging out that's how they have to walk away the servants of god the servants of david humiliated, sent away, cast out. that ever happen? Sure it does. Does that mean the servants of God or the servants of David shouldn't have been there? Nope. Same kindness that goes to Mephibosheth goes to those to give them an opportunity to receive or reject. They take it to Hanum. And he humiliates him. When they told David, he sent to meet them. Now, I love this about David. Because the men were greatly ashamed. So the king said, wait at Jericho until your beards have grown and then return. They, they send message to the king. They don't want to come walking up to the king with their backside hanging out, half a beard cut off. They're like, um, look, uh, we got as close to where there were people. And this is as far as we want to go. And David sent to them. Gave them what they needed to be covered. Brought them into Jericho. Didn't bring them into the hometown. Allowed them to grow their beards back. Take the time so they wouldn't be so degraded or humiliated. And then bring them into town. David cared about this humiliation that they had. And when the people of Ammon saw that they had made themselves repulsive to David. Now, just so you know. There's not a stronger word that they could use there. Of how angry David is with the people of Ammon. They were repulsive in his sight. Anyone who rejects the love of Jesus Christ is repulsive in the Father's sight. And he has created a special place for the repulsive. He created them a place. He notched out for them a place in the universe that is the utter absence of God. We call that place hell. Nobody's there today. There's not one soul in hell. There will be. But there's not one soul there now. Not one. There are people waiting. There are people in what the Bible calls the grave, 
awaiting judgment and a place of uh, a place of torment. Why are they in torment? Because they know their judgment is waiting. They know that I, I have made a choice that will cause me to be in a place of utter separation from God for eternity. That I am repulsive in God's sight. Now, just so we know, we're all repulsive in God's sight until we receive the love of Christ. And then we're adopted. The same kindness is extended to Mephibosheth and Hanan. One slaps it away. One receives it in humility. The stories of what take place are vastly different. So it says, when David heard this, well, let's see. So they hired the Syrians of Beth Rohab, the Syrians of Zobah, 20,000 foot soldiers, and from the king of Maacah, 1,000 men, and from Ishtob, 12,000. So you have 22,000, 12,000, 1,000. So that's what, 35,000 people? Somewhere like, something like that. If you <coughs> can add fast for me, then I'll send you a medal. Now, when David heard of it, listen to this. When David heard of it, listen, when David heard of it, he sent Joab and all the army of the mighty men. Oh, that must have been thousands and thousands of people, right? Well, the Bible says David had 300 mighty men. 35,000. And David says, oh, okay. Well, I'm not going to send you the rest of the troops. I'm just going to send you the stone-cold, Bible-believing, slaying faith people. You won't even believe them. Adino the Esnite. One guy of the 300 of David, the chief of the 300 of David, killed 800 men by himself. Where did they all come from? You remember when David was hiding in the caves? It said all the degenerates, all the people that were unhappy, all the people who didn't have a place to be, they all came to David. And they became his mighty men, his army. David sends his mighty men, Joab and Abishai, the chief, the two, the two brothers, Joab and Abishai, and they send, I believe, the mighty men to be 300. I believe that's what he sent. They went out there. Now, they have reputations. They've already whooped all these guys. Every one of the 35,000 who's gathered has already been whooped by David. They come from countries already in submission to Israel. They've already experienced the hand of God in battle. But their raid to this crazy king who has extended love and slapped it away and now is going to face judgment. And the judgment comes through many or few. When we read Revelation chapter 19, let me just tell you, when the armies of the world are gathered together, and there will be vastly more than 35,000, there will be in the plains of Megiddo, underneath Mount Megiddo, which is a place called Har Megiddo, or Armageddon, they're gathered in this place to do battle against what's left of the nation of Israel. The utter obliteration of Israel is what they're planning. That's their goal, to wipe them out. As the Antichrist is getting ready to wipe them all out, he hears that the kings of the east, with a 200 million man army, 
have marched down on the other side, and they also have now entered into the plains of Megiddo. You say, how is that possible? Well, the Valley of Jezreel, which is Armageddon, is 185 miles long. It's a big valley. It's not a little. Big place. Napoleon said it's the, it's the world's most perfect battlefield. And lots of battles have been fought there. So the Antichrist is going to turn away from them. I'm going to wipe you guys out in a minute. And he's going to turn toward the armies of the kings of the east. And the kings of the east is turning toward. And all these armies gathered together in that 185 mile valley of Armageddon. And they're getting ready for utter destruction of all mankind in that place. And at that moment, the skies will open up. And Jesus Christ is going to return with all the hosts. The Bible calls him Yahweh Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts. He's going to be coming back. He's coming back with his church. He's coming back with the angels. I don't even know how many of those there are. He's going to have innumerable hosts. So now at the Valley of Armageddon, you have all the armies of the world. And then you have all the hosts of heaven descending with Jesus Christ down into the valley of Armageddon. But you know who fights the battle? Only one. The Lord doesn't call on an angel. He doesn't call on a member of the church. The Bible says Jesus will defeat them with the sword of his mouth. You remember how the world began, right? In the beginning, God created from nothing the heavens and the earth. He said, let there be light, and light was. In this instance, all the Lord has to say is, you're not, and you're not. The Bible says in Colossians that... Every human, everything, every part of the universe is held together by God. And if God lets go, it'll come apart. You ever had your life come apart? Some of us have. Well, the same way our life can come apart if God lets go, so can our bodies. Jesus Christ, according to the the Old Testament prophets, is going to walk through the valley of Jezreel and he's going to look like a man who has stomped, have you ever heard this phrase? The grapes of the wrath of God alone. And they're going to say, where have you returned from? And he says, from wiping out the enemy. And the blood flowed to the horse's bridle. In a 185 mile long valley. God doesn't need anybody's help. To deal. With the repulsive. With the ones to whom the love of God was extended. And the love of God was swatted away. And now stand before a holy and just God. To pay. For what they did to his son. And to his children whom he sent. And the way they treated them. That's the same thing we see, we read in in chapter 10. Well, the Bible says they went with their mighty men. (coughs) 
Then the people of Ammon came and put themselves in battle array at the entrance of the gate. The Syrians, Bethrohab, Ishtob, Maacah, they were with themselves in the field. Joab saw that the battle line against him before and behind. So basically they're surrounded, the, the 300 guys. They're surrounded, and so <coughs> Joab takes a look at it. And the rest of the people he put under the command of Abishai, so they divide the army. Abishai takes some, Joab takes others. That he might set them in battle array against the people of Ammon. And he says, so if the, Assyri- or if the Syrians are too strong for me, then you sh- shall help me. But if the people of Ammon are too strong for you, then I'll come help you. As Joab and Abishai make this deal. What if they're too strong for both of us? Hmm. We don't even consider that possibility. But look, listen to what he says. Be of good courage and let us be strong for our people and for the cities of our God. And may the Lord do what is good in his sight. They commit the battle to the Lord. Now listen to the next verse. So Joab and the people who were with him, what's the next two words? Drew near. Did it say they hit anybody? When Joab and the people who were with him drew near for the battle, not in the battle, drew near for the battle against the Syrians, and what happened? They fled. I don't think they fought at all. I think they had whatever they had. Say there's 15,000 over here and 17,000 over there or whatever there is. And 150 guys come riding at them. And they go, you remember last time this happened? We've already been whipped by these guys before. And they've left. This is not their fight. The king of Ammon made them mad. What are we doing here? So they all leave. I think it's the shortest battle in history. I think, and, and it says the next verse says, when the people of Ammon saw the Syrians fleeing, they fled. So when the guys on this side saw these people running away, then they left. I don't think a fight happened. I think all those armies that were gathered just booked. And Joab and Abishai looked at each other and says, wow, man, we must be bad men. Man, they know it's the power of God working. So in verse 15 it says, so, so Joab returned and <coughs> Abishai and went to Jerusalem. So now they're back with David. Now when the Syrians saw that they had been defeated, because <laughs> they all ran away, they gathered together. And Hadarazar, he sent, remember this guy, we've seen him already, sent and brought out the Syrians who were beyond the river and they came to Halem. And Shobach, the commander of Hadarazar's army, went before them. And it was told to David. So he gathered all of Israel. Now it's not the 300. Now he gathers his army. He gathers all of Israel, crosses over the Jordan, and comes to Helam. And the Syrians set themselves in battle array against David and fought. Now this time they don't run. They set it up. Now earlier, David only sent out Joab and Abishai. He didn't go to battle. And he didn't send out the whole army. He just sent out his 300 to deal with it. And a lot of people think... That God was telling David here at this part, David, David, don't stay home. When it's time to go to battle, you go to battle too. Why is that going to be important? Because in chapter 11 it begins when the time came for the kings to go out to war. 
David sent out the soldiers and does what? Stays home and watches somebody take a bath he should have never seen. So the Lord has all those guys run away, gathers the army again. David goes out this time. The Syrians fled before Israel. David killed 700 charioteers, 40,000 horsemen of the Syrians, and struck Shobach, the commander of the army, who died there. And when all the kings who were servants of Hadarezar saw that they were defeated by Israel, they made peace and served them. So the Syrians were afraid to help the people of Ammon anymore. We come to the end of chapter 10, we're reminded. The chapter earlier, the poor, lame, broken, received the very same kindness that David extended to the wealthy, had it all together, king of the land. One received the humble, one rejected the proud. Rejection ended in annihilation. Submission ended in in elevation as God raised him up. Well, same choices we see in our lives today. Studying a man after God's own heart and seeing that work in our lives. Hey, God wants us to take the word to whoever, right? He wants us to say, whosoever will call on the name of the Lord. Everybody has a right to hear. And once they hear, they're then responsible for a decision. You're standing in the valley of decision. Where will you go? What will you do? On one hand is destruction. On the other hand is my deliverer. That's where I want to go. How about you? Why don't you stand with me? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we just thank you for this time. We can come before you. We can study your word. We can (coughs) see, God, how you move and work in the life of a man after your own heart in a picture a type of christ and gosh wow we just see so so easily lord how you work in the life of mephibosheth in in a dry and dusty land lord you bring him to the table of the king as you go to the other with the exact same kindness and the exact same offer but because of pride he will not receive And he rejects. Lord, may we be those of a humble heart, willing to realize, I am lame. I cannot stand before my God unless he makes me able to stand. May we receive the grace that he extends. And may we recognize, may we know beyond a shadow of a doubt, he is my deliverer. He is the one who takes me out of the miry clay and sets me on the rock. And may we glorify his name now and always. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.